0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi everybody, this is New Books in Psychology, and I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte, in Miami. Today we're speaking with Mark Gerald about his new book, In the Shadow of Freud's Couch, Portraits of Psychoanalysts in Their Offices, published in 2020 by Routledge. Mark Gerald is a practicing psychoanalyst and trained photographer based in the USA who has written, presented, and taught widely about the visual dimension of psychoanalysis. He is a faculty member of the New York University postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, the Stephen Mitchell Center for Relational Studies, the National Institute for the Psychotherapies, and the Institute for Contemporary Psychotherapy. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here. So you say that psychoanalysis has a visual dimension. What is that?
1: Well, it's, um, the importance of being able to see what's right before your eyes. Um, I think psychoanalysis uh, has a history of ignoring, seeing the one another. And that stems back to Freud's decision to have his patient on the couch and have him sort of out of eyesight uh, and where the two parties really are not seeing one another. And I think there's so much that has been lost by not being able to really recognize that we both are two people in a room and that there's something very interesting, quite fascinating, and quite compelling about being able to look at one another and register what it is that is being expressed in the visual expression of ourselves. Um, so that that's an area I'm very very interested in, and it stems from a number of different sources. Uh, importantly, my background in photography is a is a big um, contributor to that.
0: So then, how did you become interested in in offices and psychoanalytic offices, and how did this project of photographing psychoanalysts' offices over two decades how did this start?
1: So the origin of it um, goes back to my childhood and it goes back to the uh, office of my father. Uh, my father was, uh, a CPA, a certified public accountant who worked independently, always had his own office and his office was a play space for me as a boy. I used to love visiting with him. Uh, on school vacations or on weekends, I would go with him to the office. And the office was this just magical room that contained um, it, it was different than than home. Uh, it was a special place and it contained all these objects that were uh, for my mind as a boy, just wonderful, things like a an old adding machine where, There would be numbers, and you would put the numbers in and then turn a crank, and they would appear on this uh, spool of paper. Uh, My father would have me add up columns, and I loved doing that. And I just enjoyed his desk. There was something very aesthetically pleasing. My grandfather was a carpenter, and the office was very wood centric. So there was always, I, I think there's almost a, um, genetic, uh, uh, predisposition for me to wood. I'm very drawn to it. Um, so, but, but that office was a very special and important place and a place that of connection for our relationship, my father and myself. And But one thing that was very instrumental, I think, in this project for me has a um, more of a traumatic aspect, and that is that my father died when I was a teenager, and I was present during his death, and uh, felt, uh, especially as I thought about it afterwards, very, very Uh, helpless on being able to do anything. Uh, And somehow the combination of the wonder and the sweetness and the uh, closeness of my relationship to him in the office and the loss of him at the time that it happened and in the way that it happened sort of cemented something about an office being a very central place of importance to me. So uh, that origin is in the background and it wasn't something that revealed itself until years later when the idea of photographing uh, analysts in their offices came up. And I I can tell you more about that if you'd like to hear that
0: as we go on. Uh, actually, actually, I would. I, I, but I also wanted to check in with you to see if I'm gathering something correctly here. You're making me think about something I hadn't thought about before, which is a way that an office looks to a child. I Hearing your story reminded me of, as a child, going to my father's office, he was a lawyer. He's a lawyer. And, and going to his first office and playing with the copy machine and, you know, playing with all sorts of things that as adults, as adults, we find quite boring and, um, expected, but I guess when you're a kid, those things possess a certain magical quality. Do you, do you think that, do you think that offices still possess that? Have we lost us that sense of wonder and awe as, as adults in our offices?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm very glad you're bringing that up because I think that is central and although I had my own specific connection to that, I think that is present in all offices. I think there is a way that when we are sort of designing our spaces or, or trying to fit ourselves into our spaces, we are in some way reverting to something of our own relationship to space and to objects that, that really goes back very, very early in life. And there's something about the familiar nature of um, that those first experiences that um, I think stay with us and, and remain with us and where we gravitate towards them and we try in many ways to replicate them. Um, there's a wonderful book that was instrumental in the development of this project. Then, you know, when I mentioned that it's early, early origin goes back to my childhood, uh, it, it, there were many different steps in the process. Even once I realized that I wanted to, uh, take pictures of, uh, analysts in their offices, And one of them was when I came upon a book called The Poetics of Space. Uh, It's a book by uh, French philosopher Gaston Bachelard. And it's a wonderful, wonderful um, exploration of what our relationship to space is and how it really starts in our very first homes and the the rooms that we're in and we we become sort of acclimated to people in space uh with that early uh influence and that really stays with us it it becomes sort of part of our bodies it becomes part of our sensory uh system we we turn in the direction of things that are familiar in that way. And sometimes I, I, this was brought to my attention uh, when I was doing some thinking and writing and reading, teaching about this, that uh, some early homes are places of disturbance and of um, of danger of trauma of deprivation uh, those also become very important. It's not just that we're drawn to the most benign aspects of our relationship to space, but uh, whatever that connection is, it's it's a very very central one, and I think stays
0: with us forever. So, so do tell us then how how did this turn into a project that took you around the world and into analysts offices to, to, to photograph them. And then how did it become a book? So,
1: um, just as you're asking me this, I, I'm just want to reflect on, um, what happens every so often and you giving me the opportunity to talk about this, uh, gets me in touch with it. And that is how fortunate I feel to have come upon this. Uh, and how meaningful and important it's been to me because writing a book, um, especially a book that has personal significance, um, uh, as this one does for me, uh, it feels it, it's sort of part of a evolution uh, of one's own therapy. It's, it's almost an ongoing part of therapy. The writing of a book is discovering A great deal about oneself and about what is it that is on your mind and in your heart uh, and in your bones that you may only have a very vague sense of. A sense that often is translated, or at least for me, is I have something to say and I want to express it uh, and I sort of have a general sense of the area it's in. But until you start doing it, uh, you, you can't know exactly what it is that's going to emerge. So it's been a, a, a sort of a joyous journey for me uh, and very um, one that I've learned so much about myself and about the world of psychoanalysis and, um, and, and various other topics that are covered there. So getting back to the question of how specifically it came into being, there were a few steps in that process. Uh, one that stands out for me is um, I, as a trainee in psychoanalysis, and I'm, I'm not sure if it, 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 would it be helpful for your listeners to just clarify one or two things about what goes into training in psychoanalysis, or is that Something. Sure. Yeah. So um, as you're training as a, as an analyst, you're going, one important part of the training is you're going for classes. And in many psychoanalytic institutes, as was certainly true in mine, many of the classes are held in the offices of psychoanalysts because they're small seminars. Um, and, um, and in addition to being in classes, you also are required as an analytic trainee to be in your own analysis. And so there's another office that you're going into. And your, your work with patients um, that you're seeing multiple times a week in an intensive work is supervised. And what that means simply is that you're going into the uh, uh, more offices of analysts who are your They're a kind of teacher or supervisor of your clinical work. So during this period of time, I was immersed, as most uh, analytic candidates are, in many offices. I spend my time going from office to office to office. And um, having trained initially to be a photographer, which is uh, a profession that I never worked, uh, you know, uh, formally in but I did do the training for um I've always had a visual orientation and so in these rooms I became very interested in what was um what what was on the walls what were the furnishings like what um, what Kind of designs were there, what objects were being displayed. Um, and although I had learned that psychoanalysts as a group, and this was more true when I was training initially, uh, were prone to be neutral in their expression, um, not to show too much of their own individual uh, taste or styles. I was struck both with, in some cases, in most cases, a similar factors that existed in almost every office, but more so with the distinctiveness of each space, every space had a very distinctive feel to it. And I, I remember one class in particular where the, um, the teacher was talking about the aggressive drive and mentioning that he did not believe that there was a real aggressive drive. And uh, I was watching him and over his head was a mantle and on the mantle were these very, very powerfully aggressive masks that were there. And there was something about the juxtaposition of him saying what he was saying. And the the images of all these rather frightening, uh, primitive uh, masks that were over his head that uh, made me think in that moment, boy, I would love to get a picture of this. And um, that moment sort of combined with, um, what was going on in my own analysis at the time. And that is, I was coming to a period of time in which, uh, my analyst and I had decided that it was time to end the work, at least at that point. And I wanted to, uh, show my analysts some of how grateful I felt for what had happened in our work together. And I thought I'd love to give him a photograph of himself. Um, I could take a picture, print it, um, get it in a nice size, put it in a frame and give it to him as a gift. So the combination of doing that in the specific relationship with this analyst And also having all of these exposures to many different offices and realizing how individually expressed each analyst was in their own space. um, It it was sort of the genesis of this idea that I'm going to start a project of photographing analysts in their offices. So that's, that's, um, part of that. That's, a uh, one of the beginnings that,
0: it, that, uh, was part of this project. And, and I be, you you reference one of your therapists in the book and include his picture, uh, Paul Litman. Is, is that the picture that you gave him as a gift? No, that, that, um,
1: uh, again, maybe for your audience, but, um, it's, um, psychoanalysis, uh, is a very interesting experience. Um, and for me, it's been one that I've had a number of analysts through, through my lifetime. Uh, that was a different analyst, but Paul was, um, is, is not that person, but Paul, the photograph of Paul and the experience of being with him, um, uh, was a wonderful experience. Paul was, uh, is an artist himself as well as an analyst and his um influence in the book is um, obvious in his photograph and in what i wrote about that experience of photographing him and being in his space but it permeates much more of the book in terms of the work that we did together that um Uh, He exists for me as sort of an inspiring shadow that uh,
0: permeates a lot of my life and a lot of my work. I want to talk about the process of your taking these pictures and then selecting the final one for the book. And you describe it very nicely on page 87 of the book. And if you don't mind, I want to read a short excerpt. You say... I am looking for an elusive message in the image that says, quote, here I am in this space and you are seeing me despite the obstacles that each of us brings to this complicated and contradictory experience of wanting to be recognized and protecting against such an intimate and vulnerable moment. End quote. It's so beautiful. Tell us what you mean.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, that, that uh, passage and what, what it references, I think, is at the heart of um, a lot of, not just the encounter in the psychoanalytic office, but human uh, experience uh, relationally. Uh, that is, I think there's a deep, deep need, even a drive, as it's sometimes been called, for us humans for other, other humans. We are driven, uh, to be with people, to, um, uh, to see them, uh, to interact with them, to touch and be touched by them. Uh, and we know from early, uh, research, uh, from research into early, uh, life, how that begins right at the start. Uh, babies are, are oriented and gravitate toward the faces of their, their mothers right from the beginning. So there is this sort of primary, uh, desire and longing for others. But as we grow and grow up, we learn and we're taught about some of the risks and vulnerabilities involved in that. And that often goes to a pulling back from that connection and the tension between those two positions, a kind of self protectiveness against being hurt, being abandoned, um, uh, being rejected, uh, on the one side and the deep, deep desire for connection, for love, for, um, togetherness on the other is present in each encounter. It's highlighted in certain encounters that have a kind of form, uh, a formalized position where that's, uh, that's strongly uh, emphasized, such as a psychoanalytic relationship and the relationship between photographer and subject. And I think each party yearns to be seen by the other and also at the same time dreads the possibility of being found lacking, uh, uh, having things seen that have been uh, a lot of time and effort has been spent protecting against being shown. So it's that kind of uh, dynamic tension that as sometimes uh, anxiety provoking, stressful as it is, is also the fertile ground for the producing of something new. Because when you actually get to see and be seen in an experience it is a remarkable, special part of being alive. And, um, uh, this is what I am always striving for in my experience in photographing portraits of, of analysts. I want the experience to be, it's a very special one for the person I'm photographing, uh, where they'll get to see it and be uh, in a way surprised and pleased with seeing a part of themselves that they know is truly them, but is not easily seen. And I also, in the process of doing it, get the pleasure of being surprised myself with what I'm able to bring to the experience to help facilitate that. Um, So it's, um, it's a special experience.
0: And because you've you've had this experience with so many people, and because you've seen so many offices across the world, I, I gotta ask: is there such a thing as as a good office or a, a a right way or a better way to to do one's office? And and if so, what are the criteria? So the uh, the short answer is is no.
1: There's no one standard or perfect office, but the what What is important is that the office is consistent with being a physical space for yourself as a therapist or analyst, that there are offices that are wrong for you and offices or designs or ways the office is set up that, that are right for you. I think it's important that an office be a place that an analyst uh, who spends often a great deal of time there, and it would be, um, I'd be missing something very important not to note, of course, we are in a time of COVID where uh, analysts are not in their offices. I I have a great deal to say about that, but I don't think this would be the time or space to do it. Um, But the space needs to be a space that's congenial for opening up the space inside yourself to be able to do the work, uh, to be free of mind and uh, spirit and to be freely associative so that you can be yourself. And there are some environments that will be more conducive for any one person than others. And that's the one to strive for.
0: And and do you think that there are certain, did you, have you found that there are certain elements, certain things that facilitate that kind of opening up for the patients?
1: Well, the, the thing that connects your question to your previous one is that I think, uh, patients who are people like us, uh, because by the way, every analyst is also a patient and every and this is a little bit more complex, but every patient is also a therapist. And that is that in the therapy, the work cannot be done by one person on the other. Both parties are partners to the process of what occurs. And both parties are beneficiaries of the process when it works well. So, um, the very important part, I think, is that if a patient comes into a room and senses that the therapist and the space are somewhat consistent, I think that's that's usually f- is facilitative. There, there are there can be exceptions to that, but I think patients are looking to come into a space that not only that they feel comfortable in, but that they feel that the person they're speaking to is comfortable in that space and welcoming of them into it. Um, so you know uh, that, that I've, I've been in spaces that I know I would not be comfortable. Uh, I, early on I showed, uh, some of my work to a group of, um, of people and they started, the, somebody said, this could be a book for potential patients to look uh, for patients who are looking for therapists to say, Oh, I like that office. That's the one, that's the person I'm going to see. And the, the very, vari- there's a lot of variability in what makes people feel at ease or, uh, enough that they can begin to open up. And that may be very different, uh, designs and architectural systems for one person than for another.
0: I I think you're making an important point, which is that, and this this may be helpful, for instance, to starting therapists who are just now putting together their offices, that ultimately what might facilitate uh, the process or have a greater impact is not the, the furniture or the arrangement or the space itself, but the way that the space facilitates a kind of opening up, of the therapist, the, the degree in which the space um, is congruent with who the therapist is and brings out the best in the therapist. Um, you can't really judge a space on its own, um, but only in its relationship to to the person who holds that space. Um, I, I did want to touch, we do have some time, and I, I wanted to hear your thoughts about <laughs> the pandemic and how it's affected the way that we think about offices. And I mean, is the psychoanalyst office over? Has the pandemic challenged the assumption that we need offices in order to do psychotherapy since we are all doing it not in our offices at this moment and for the past nine months? I,
1: I, I truly hope that the psychoanalytic office is not, is not over. I think what we've been challenged with now, though, and by the way, this challenge predated the pandemic because with the advent of various video communication systems like Skype and FaceTime. Uh, and of course, now, you know Zoom uh, is, is just so prevalent. Uh, but even earlier than that, with telephone sessions, which sometimes took place, the question about what is the place of the physical office and what, um, you know, is it necessary? I, I wrote an early paper um, when I was working on this project uh, that I adapted to a chapter in my book, um, but the, the title of it was Psychoanalysis, the Psychoanalytic Office, Past, Present, and Future, And I looked at the future and the question about do we need uh, an office to practice when there's all these other means that are available? And little did I know at the time that the pandemic would make this the common way of working. Um, But I think the way to connect the two is that there is in the work, the important thing is that we are connected somehow to the uh, opening up of space. We're really working on opening up internal space, but external space is an important part of that. We, after all, are not just unconscious minds, but we are the unconscious mind is uh, housed in our. In our mind or in our brain or wherever we might situate it. It's in our bodies. Our bodies are situated in spaces. And so, even when we're in our home or working from some remote location, or when our patient is not on our couch, but on their own couch in their den or a room somewhere, the same Principles of using the space that is outside as a means of opening up and entering the space inside is still there. So, even through, I mean, here you and I are talking uh, for this podcast uh, by electronic means. I'm on my um, laptop uh, computer and uh, I'm looking at a uh, sort of uh, a line that's going across. That is my voice, I guess. Recognizing my voice, uh, and it's uh, it's sort of a slightly pulsing line. It could be a heartbeat. Uh, it could be a brainwave. Uh, and this is how we're connecting now. I am seeing you, if you will, uh, on the other side of this. This machine. Is facilitating our work just as an office or a couch or uh, a bookcase might facilitate associations with a patient. um, Our connection and our challenge in this work now is to still stay connected through the means that we have available. Uh, It it is a uh, you know it's it's a high uh, obstacle to somehow, uh, manage, but we have to continue to do it because in our work, ultimately we carry our psychoan, our psychoanalytic office with us. We are the office holders of psychoanalysis and therefore wherever we are, we bring that with us.
0: So, so really the task if, if I'm hearing you right, it's, I mean, this is really interesting. The the way you're having me think about this is we have to find, look, look for signifiers, signs, evidence of, of the other, of the continuity of the other. Um, whether that be in a, a pulsating line that signifies, Oh, he is talking. I am talking there. There he is. I, I see him that, that, in this case, that is one of many things that's maybe facilitating our connection. And that's what we are probably doing without realizing that we're doing it over these past nine months with, with our patients now, providing signifiers, signals that we are here, uh, we're present, we're we with them, a way for them to, to find us and to feel found. Um, am I getting it right? Uh, yes,
1: I, I think that's um, you know that's that's very. Um, I, I feel very connected with what you're saying, and and as you're saying it, um, there is a uh, poignancy in in this um, effort, uh, and I think it's a poignancy that is always there in every psychoanalytic work. There is a kind of struggle to remain human and to connect despite the obstacles that life puts in our path. Uh, uh, Some of those are inevitable, like the very nature of mortality, uh, the very sense of um, no matter how close people are to one another, we are ultimately separate units of existence. Um, There is a kind of poignancy in the work. Uh, I, I'm, I'm always um touched by by any analyst I come in touch with, if if you will, because um I know that there is a kind of um struggle to uh do something that ultimately we aspire to but we know on some level We can only approximate, we can never quite achieve what we're trying to fully achieve. And yet the effort is so important and so instrumental in the effect that it has on the lives of people, including first and foremost, our patients and secondarily, but not unimportantly
0: on ourselves. So well said. Um, Mark, I, we are almost out of time. I didn't want to end without asking you what you are up to now.
1: Um, so I find myself during this period of, um, the pandemic, um, among those people who, um, uh, talk about being very busy and active. And I know that um, there is uh, a way that this can be a very deadening period of time. Uh, but I've been finding myself very filled with creative energy. Um, some of it uh, I use physically in that I, I like, um, I like using my body, I've, I like going to the gym or working out, uh, I love playing tennis, um, these are things that that complement my work as an analyst, which is very sedentary, involves a lot of listening uh, and a lot of quietness and a non movement. So the in having both sides for me um, is a very important balance. Um, prof- creatively and professionally, I am still very interested in photographing analysts. I no longer can do them in their offices, but I've been speaking to a few analysts and we've been trying to work out a way that I can represent something of the work that they're doing during the pandemic photographically and still um, do it in a safe way for uh, both the person I'm photographing myself and my my assistant so I'm still working out some some uh, things about that uh, I'm writing uh, a an essay now on uh, basically it's on photography and psychoanalysis it's for one of the journals in the field the Journal of the American psychoanalytic Association and I'm, Uh, discussing uh, a couple of books in it. One is a biography of the photographer Dion Arbus uh, called Portrait of a Photographer. And the other is a very interesting book about the uh, psychoanalyst Melanie Klein. It's a book that emphasizes the many photo uh, painting and sculpture portraits that were taken of Klein during her lifetime. There were a remarkable number of uh, uh, images that were you were taken of Melanie Klein, and this book discusses the um, these portraits, the relationship of the artist and Klein in context of uh, her life story and her work. So that's something that's been uh, interesting me a lot because of my interest in the relationship between uh, artist and subject and between psychoanalyst and and patient. Sure,
0: sure. Those sound like really cool projects. And uh, if you do end up putting another book together about offices during this pandemic, I, I can't wait to see and it. And I hope that you will come back on the show and talk to us. I, I want to remind our listeners of the, of the name of your book. It's called... In the Shadow of Freud's Couch, Portraits of Psychoanalysts in Their Offices. And my guest today has been Mark Gerald. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. It's, it's been wonderful talking
1: with you. I appreciate it.